0: You're listening to the William Allen Smith Podcast, where I talk about books, thoughts, and roads, the journeys of life. Demand for my opinions is at an all-time low, and for good reason. So thank you for listening. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Today, I'm exploring chapters four and five of Brian Zahn's beautiful book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to buy a copy and get started. It's a wonderful book that is well worth your investment and time. Okay, let's dig in to chapter four. Brian asks the very important question in this chapter, what is God like? And basically to sum up the whole chapter, the answer is God is like Jesus. Here's a quote, Jesus's entire life was a demonstration of the true nature of God. As Jesus heals the sick, forgives the sinner, receives the outcast, restores the fallen, and supremely as he dies on a cross, forgiving his killers, he reveals what God is like. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. And Brian Zahn helps us focus that revelation in to the place where that revelation reaches its pinnacle, its climax. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God, and the cross is the pinnacle of that revelation. Now, what Brian does is he goes into the inadequacy of atonement theories. Atonement theories are are theological explanations— of how the cross works. It's like we know that God uh, was at work on the cross to bring salvation to us, but exactly what was it about that? What was God doing and and how does it work and what need does it meet and what does it satisfy? There's all kinds of theories uh, that are out there called atonement theories, and they're all inadequate. Brian Zahn invites us to come Before we get to explanations, to come to the wonder of the cross, the mystery of the cross, to even just come to the terror and the the horror and the violence of the cross, that ultimately what you have here is an innocent man being tortured to death. And it's horrific and it's awful. And before we get to trying to explain it theologically, abstractly, conceptually, let's come to the cross in its brutality and just take it in. So he talks about the inadequacy of atonement theories, and then he specifically talks about not just the inadequacy, but the repellent nature of what is probably the most common atonement theory in the evangelical church, and that Theory is called penal substitution. It's it's this idea that God needed to torture somebody. He needed to kill somebody. He needed his pound of flesh. He had a lot of wrath and he needed to pour it out and he was going to pour it out on somebody. And Jesus took our place. He he took the punishment in our place. He was our substitute so that God poured out his wrath on Jesus instead of us. And if we receive that by faith, then we're saved. In that instance, Jesus is saving us from God. Now, that's the most common atonement theory in the evangelical church, and it's really repellent. It's not a beautiful picture of of the cross. It's not really even a biblical one. I love the way Brian says it here. He says, at the cross, Jesus does not save us from God. At the cross, Jesus reveals God as Savior. When we look to the cross, we don't see what God does. We see who God is. Mm. Here's another quote. The cross is not a picture of payment. The cross is a picture of forgiveness. Good Friday is not about divine wrath. Good Friday is about divine love. Calvary is is not where we see how violent God is. Calvary is where we see how violent our civilization is. The justice of God is not retributive. The justice of God is restorative. Justice that is purely retributive changes nothing. The cross is not where God finds a whipping boy to vent his rage upon. The cross is where God saves the world through self-sacrificing love. The only thing God will call justice is setting the world right, not punishing an innocent substitute for the petty sake of appeasement. So was the death of Jesus a sacrifice? Yes. The death of Jesus was indeed a sacrifice, but it was a sacrifice to end sacrificing, not a sacrifice to appease an angry and retributive God. Wow, what a beautiful quote. So from that, we begin to see that the cross changes the way we read the Old Testament. It becomes a a lens through which we read and understand the New Testament. The cross changes how I understand the fear of God. Brian says this, In what is called the fear of God, what I fear is not God, but the suffering my sin can inflict upon myself and those around me. What God calls me to fear is the destructive results of sin, and I take God seriously. The shorthand term for this is the fear of God. The malevolent consequences of sin are all too real, but I'm not afraid of God. I used to be, but I am no longer. Uh, I love that idea of th- that, that when we begin to view Old Testament concepts through the lens of the cross, that it changes the way we see them, th- that apart from the lens of Jesus and the cross, I might read about the fear of God and take in this idea that I'm supposed to live in terror of his wrath, of his punishment, of his disapproval, of his anger. And, but through the lens of the cross, I begin to see that God isn't like that at all. I might read the Old Testament and think, wow, God is violent. God commands genocide. God commands child sacrifice to test people's faith. He, 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 Just what kind of God is this? But in Jesus, we find out, wow, God isn't like that at all. He's not punishing. He's not retributive. He's loving. He's light. He's trustworthy. He's approachable. He's Abba. He's Daddy. So God reveals himself in the person of Jesus, and that revelation finds its focal point in the cross— And so when I look at the cross, I think to myself, wow, this is what God is like. This is a God who makes himself small. This is a God who sacrifices himself for our sake. This is a God who's willing to take on human suffering and human violence. And rather than punish it, he forgives. That's what God is like. God is like Jesus. And God is most like Jesus when Jesus is on the cross. It's chapter four. Chapter 5 asks this question, who killed Jesus? I love the way Brian Zahn says it here. God did not kill Jesus. Jesus was killed by the principalities and powers, a term used by the Apostle Paul to describe the very powerful, the very rich, the very religious, the institutions they represent, and the spirits that operate within these institutions. Jesus was put to death by the structures of political, economic, and religious power represented by Pontius Pilate, Herod Antipas, and Joseph Caiaphas. So we need to redefine the relationship between the cross and forgiveness. I was taught my whole life that Jesus died so that God could forgive me. Now, What no one ever pointed out was all the times that God forgave people before the cross and that even Jesus forgave people before the cross. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. We have this idea that God demands blood and then he can forgive. But yet we find that he's very, very forgiving before the cross. You see, Moses required sacrifice. We read in the Pentateuch these commands, Moses has heard from God, God requires this kind of sacrifice and that kind of sacrifice and this kind of blood and this often and this way. And it's all very specific and it's all very similar to the way Near Eastern religions uh, assume their gods were, that they require blood sacrifice to appease them. But what we find in the Old Testament is this gradual unfolding of revelation of what God is really like, so that by the time we get to David, we can read in Psalm 40, verse 6, David says, "'In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required.'" See, here's the Bible challenging the Bible. You can back up to the Pentateuch and find that God requires it. But then by the time David comes along, he realizes, wait a minute, that's not what God is like. He hasn't required that. And then by the time you get to prophets like Hosea, Hosea, we can read in Hosea 6:6, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And then you could advance all the way to the book of Hebrews and and read in chapter 10, beginning with verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written, of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings these are offered according to the law then he added behold i have come to do your will he does away with the first in order to establish the second when jesus shows up he is the embodiment of this message that david and hosea were getting glimpses of that he comes in and says listen you did not desire sacrifice you did not desire these offerings i have come to do your will and what was the will of god that god would show up embodied and And offer mercy and forgiveness. And even when he himself became the sacrifice, not for God, God himself sacrificing himself to our violence, to our religion, to our politics, to our demands, to our selfishness, to our will to power. He sacrifices himself to that. And as he sacrifices himself, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus came to do the will of God. And the writer of Hebrews makes the connection that the will of God was not sacrifice. The will of God was forgiveness. When we make the cross about payment to an angry God for our individual sins, we remove the focus away from what God was doing, defeating Principalities and powers. See, our world is ruled by this human tendency towards selfishness and violence and power over, and our willingness to uh, climb that louder at the at the expense of others. And and God comes in in recognition that that human tendency towards violence is empowered by demonic principalities and powers that operate through individuals and operate through systems and operate through institutions and god comes in and says let me show you my kind of power and in laying down his life and sacrificing himself he is acting to defeat the principalities and powers and we when we make the cross something about well i have individual guilt because I broke some individual rules. We are taking away the focus off of what God was actually doing on the cross, defeating the principalities and powers. When we make the cross about God's bloodlust and his desire to pour out his wrath to torture somebody because of all the rules that have been broken, we actually are removing the focus away from where Paul placed it upon the defeat of the principalities and powers. Brian Zahn says this. When we turn the cross into a payment for our personal debt to an offended God, we leave unchallenged the massive structures of sin that so grotesquely distort humanity. If the cross is simply Jesus purchasing our ticket, our get-out-of-jail-free card, then the principalities and powers are left unchallenged to run the world the way they always have. The world is left unsaved. But that's not how the Apostle Paul understood the cross. Paul says the cross heaps shame upon the rulers and authorities that preside over structural sin. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. The principalities and powers seek legitimacy by claiming to be wise and just, but the cross proves they are neither wise nor just. At the cross, the principalities are stripped of their cloaks of legitimacy so that their naked bid for power is exposed to the world for what it really is. God didn't crucify Jesus. Rome and the Sanhedrin did. Now, the cross forever shames the rich and powerful who seek to preserve their privilege and position through the use of violence. Their pretentious claim that they are wise and just enough to use violent means to achieve good ends is put to everlasting shame. If we claim that it was God who required the crucifixion of Jesus, we seek to clothe with false dignity the very structures of sin that Jesus deliberately stripped bare and put to open shame in his death. Wow, what an amazing quote. I just had to read the whole thing. Here's another one. Brian Zahn says this, God did not kill Jesus. God's action on Good Friday was to surrender his beloved son to our system and our system killed him. But on Easter Sunday, God overthrew our satanic verdict by raising Jesus from the dead. God did not kill Jesus. We did. What God did was to raise Jesus from the dead and, in Christ, give us a new way of organizing the world. Instead of being organized around blame and ritual killing, the world is now to be organized around forgiveness and co-suffering love. The cross is not the place where God vents his wrath on Jesus. The cross is the place where human fear and anger are absorbed into God's eternal love and recycled into the saving mercy of Christ. Wow. So that's chapters four and five, just summing up his thoughts, trying to include some quotes there that really give you a window into his argument and the rest of the chapter Really, really good stuff. A few thoughts that just stand out to me from these two chapters. First of all, God is not violent and retributive. If we just had the Old Testament, there are certainly places there where we might think God was violent and retributive. If all we had was the evangelical lens through which many of us have been exposed to the gospel, then we might certainly think God is violent and retributive. I was overtly taught that God killed Jesus. That it was God, because of my sin, yes, but that it was God pouring out his wrath on Jesus. That's how I understood the gospel. That's how I understood the cross. But that is antithetical to what Jesus reveals about what God is like. God is not violent and retributive. This is revealed in the life and ultimately in the death of Jesus. And this has to change how we read the Bible. It has to become the lens through which we read, interpret, and apply scripture. Second, if God isn't violent and retributive, what is he? What does justice look like? God's kind of justice brings forgiveness and healing. God's kind of justice is not violent and retributive. And so if God's justice brings forgiveness and healing, this should change our expectation for how things will turn out in the end, which points us forward to the next chapters that we're going to deal with, where Brian Zahn talks about hell. And when he talks about uh, the end times and the book of revelation that, but, but he's laying the foundation for it here. If God is not violent and retributive, And if God's kind of justice is not retributive, it's not punishing, but rather it is forgiving, it's healing, it's restorative, then that lens becomes not just how we view the Old Testament, but it also becomes the lens through which we uh, aim and focus our expectation for the future that we're no longer... Uh, expecting a God who's going to show up with violence and show up with retribution, but rather we expect a God who's going to be who he fully revealed himself to be in Jesus. He's going to come and heal. He's going to come and restore. He's going to come, as N.T. Wright says, and set the world to rights. The third thing that stands out to me from these two chapters, just connecting the dots here, is God is a God who gets small. God is powerful, but in Jesus, God redefines what he means by power. God's kind of power is not power over. It's not the exercise of might over someone else. God's kind of power is self-sacrificial love. So if the lens of the cross is changing how we see the Old Testament, and it's changing our expectation for the future, that lens of Jesus and the cross also becomes the lens through which we understand human relationships and, and it, it changes our entire approach to morality and ethics. Because if God is a God who gets small and, a, and that that is powerful and, and that God's kind of power is self-sacrificial love, then that should filter in to how we approach human relationships and morality ceases to be about rules and it ceases to be about, uh, just meeting external religious pressures, but morality becomes a healthy ethic that's rooted in love and care for others and serving others. And how can I get smaller and how can I self-sacrifice in order to love you? It becomes our lens to understand human relationships Jesus said this, the last shall be first. He said this, if you try to save your life, you lose it. The gospel invites us to set aside the human uh, quest for power. The the gospel invites us to reframe and redefine our understanding of what power even is, that it's not power over. it's, It's how can I get lower? How can I get smaller? How can I serve? Instead of trying to save my life, how can I lay it down? The pinnacle of this to me is Philippians 2, that talking about Jesus that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped but instead emptied himself and it talks about how he took on the form of a servant and became obedient even to the point of death therefore God has exalted him therefore God has given him a name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord listen Jesus is exalted he is Lord but on what basis what kind of power does Jesus have it is not a power because of how big he got and how much strength he put on display. It is a power that is the direct result of his willingness to empty himself, to lower himself, to be, to become obedient, to suffer. And that is the power of Jesus. That's Jesus's kind of power. And that's what he invites us into have this same mind that was in Christ Jesus is the way that passage starts. So those are my thoughts uh, on, on Jesus on the cross as the focal point, as the lens through which we understand the Old Testament, through which we anticipate the future, and through which we understand the present and our engagement with human relationships and what real power looks like. Obviously, that has a lot of implications in, in the roads part of this. How do we live our life? I think I would just sum that up this way. Jesus invites us into a new way of living, not violence, not punishment, not blame, not fear, not the selfish will to power. Jesus invites us to get smaller, to serve, to consider how our choices will affect others, to forgive, to love. I wish I could tell you that I'd always lived that way, that I always made decisions that were about serving, about considering others, about protecting others, about considering how my choices will affect them It's not the way I've always lived, but I hear this gospel call saying there's a different way that because of Jesus, because of his death on the cross, because of his resurrection, because of the presence of the spirit, there is now within access, within my reach, this new way of living. And Jesus is calling all of us to live that way. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, Looking forward to next week, uh, we're going to talk about hell, and it's going to be fun to explore Brian Zond's approach to that. Really looking forward to digging in and sharing some of that with you. I hope that you've purchased the book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God by Brian Zond. It's available wherever you buy books, and I hope that you'll buy it and read it, uh, and I hope this podcast is encouraging you to do so. Uh, Until next week, have a great one. Thanks for joining me thanks for listening to the podcast. I'd love to connect with you on Twitter at W Smith and on Instagram at W underscore Smith. If you like what I'm doing, find it helpful, tell someone else about it. That kind of organic growth is the only kind I'm interested in. If you have a comment or question, you can email me at info at williamallensmith.com. Thank you so much. Until next time.